Promotional consideration for Growing Greater Philadelphia provided by the University of Pennsylvania, Citizens Bank, and the General Building Contractors Association. This is the Growing Greater Philadelphia podcast, bringing you more of the interviews and stories from the Growing Greater Philadelphia radio program. Now, here's Matt Cabry. So welcome to Growing Greater Philadelphia. We're here with uh, Brett Topchi, co-founder and managing director of Red and Blue Ventures. Brett, thanks for being with us. Thanks very much for having me. Brett, what is Red and Blue Ventures? The Red and Blue Ventures is a seed stage venture capital fund. That means we're getting involved with companies pretty much at their earliest stages of development, pre-revenue, maybe early revenue. But what's unique about Red and Blue Ventures is that we've built our entire fund around the University of Pennsylvania ecosystem. What we mean by that is we're typically backing student, faculty, or alumni entrepreneurs. Hmm. And how did you come up with that idea? It's pretty unique and pretty defined. Well, I believe as a small venture capital fund, you really have to narrowly define what it is that you're going to be good at. And for us, rather than being sector experts in a very narrow area, we thought here in Philadelphia, we've got an incredible resource in the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, it's one of the top educational institutions in the world. Um, they've got incredibly talented people on the faculty side as well as on the student side across a huge variety of areas. And so if we're going to build a fund in Philadelphia, why not do it to take advantage of one of its greatest resources? Um, in addition, my partner, Michael Aronson, taught there for a dozen years and has a deep network both on the faculty side as well as on the alumni side with thousands of former students. And there are a few things more powerful that you can build a fund around than a strong network like that. And where does the Red and Blue Venture team focus most of its investment uh, energy? In terms of sector or? Yeah, yeah, your sector focus. So we're pretty broad because we're going to narrow the world to one university ecosystem. And you can only narrow the world on so many axes at once while still leaving yourself um, an attractive amount of things to look at. So we stay within IT, but define IT really broadly. We'll do hardware, we'll do software, we'll do tech-enabled services. Uh, we've done a fair amount of e-commerce, both third-party e-commerce as well as what they now call digitally native vertical brands, which are effectively consumer product companies, but that are uh, that are internet first, effectively. Um, you know, they start out on the internet. Some of them ultimately move into into physical retail, but certainly not all of them. Um, where we try to stay out of is things that are on the realm of science experiments. We don't want to do pharma. We don't want to do medical devices. We don't want to do advanced materials. We just find fundamentally it's a very different investment calculus when you're looking at those types of deals. The success or failure tends to be reasonably binary and tends to be driven by the success or failure of high-end science, which neither my partner nor I has the advanced levels of scientific education to make a really educated decision about. And Red and Blue Ventures is really a startup. In itself. We are. We just started in 2016, although we had a prior fund called MentorTech Ventures that had a somewhat similar strategy of maybe a little bit broader in terms of the sectors that we looked at. As a startup, talk a little bit about the uh, ecosystem of startups in greater Philadelphia. And I know there's a, obviously the connection to Penn with Red and Blue Ventures, um, but is there something even more unique about Philadelphia when it comes to the startup scene? There's a lot of good things happening in Philadelphia. I think one of the really important things that Philly has going for it is the ratio of talent to startups. Um, I, I hear about the talent that's in other places. Uh, you hear about San Francisco or New York or some of the more, I'll call them traditional venture capital markets. And yes, there's a huge number of really talented people there. But you also can't walk 15 feet in San Francisco without tripping over an entrepreneur. And what you see is there's a lot of people to hire initially, but the tenure at these businesses tends to be pretty short. People are hopping from company to company to company with this incredibly intense competition for talent. 
in Philly, we have a lot of really talented people and our terrific universities are cranking out more and more talented people every year. And there are plenty of opportunities for them, but the competition is maybe a little bit less fierce and you can hire really good people and hopefully keep them longer in Philly than you can in other places, which is great. Um, there's also a lot to be said for the quality of life in the city itself and in the, in the surrounding suburbs. Um, I'm not originally from Philadelphia and it took me a little while to get my head around Philly. And what I've learned is that it's a terrific place to live in addition to being a great place to work. And I'm, I'm raising my young children in the city, which is, uh, which is fantastic and something that is often very difficult to do in other metropolitan areas for, for cost of living reasons. Um, we're, we're very fortunate that actually one of the public schools in our neighborhood is terrific and I'm able to send my, my older son and, and soon my younger son to, to a fantastic public school. Um, which is very important and you know, we'd like to see happen across even more of the neighborhoods in Philadelphia. And I know the, uh, the administration is working very hard on that right now. Um, and really, I think Philly, in addition to all of that, gives you terrific access. So I was recently at an event called The Rise of the Rest that Steve Case is running, the founder of AOL. And he was bringing together entrepreneurs from all over the country and all of these non-traditional startup markets. And one of the things that was very difficult for a lot of those places was access to large companies, access to larger markets. Well, Philadelphia, first of all, is probably the largest market by population that was at this event. But just as importantly, being part of the Northeast Corridor with relatively easy Amtrak access for anywhere from D.C. to Boston, it's not just Philadelphia. You're, you have all the advantages of Philadelphia while having access to the much broader ecosystem. We at Select Greater Philadelphia will often position our proximity and our access in a little bit of a different way. It's actually to the benefit of New York and D.C. that they're so close to Philadelphia. And that's the way we like folks to look through that lens. Oh, fantastic. I love it. <laughs> Share with us a little bit, uh, Brett, about your experience. Um, you know, you came to the University of Pennsylvania. Why did you choose this location as your uh, educational career track as opposed to another potential uh, educational institution? Uh, I think probably the biggest draw for me to come to Penn originally was Wharton. Um, I have always been fascinated by business from the time I was a little kid. I remember my dad doing business deals and he, he's an accountant and he was working not necessarily on deals that he was doing himself, but, but advising people on all of these deals on the car phone, just give you a set of, you know, a point of reference for how far back we're going. But on one of those big bulky car phones that was permanently installed in the car. And I remember being on about a three hour drive back from a program I had done in, in central Pennsylvania one summer and listening to him negotiate this deal and just being fascinated by all the moving pieces and everyone trying to get what they want out of this, uh, out of, I believe it was a sale of a business, but we're going back a long time now. I could have that wrong. Sure. Um, I, I just always loved that. And so I was very fortunate actually in the town where I grew up I had the opportunity to be effectively a business major in high school as well. Um, in, uh, in central New Jersey, this, uh, the schools, had, they called them the specialized learning centers where you could effectively have a major in high school. And so Wharton was really the big draw for me at Penn. But I also love the idea of being at an urban campus where you have not just the things that are happening on campus, but also the, the broader city available to you. There's some, there's some terrific schools that are out in, uh, in more suburban and rural areas, and that's great. But for me, I wanted to be in a city urban area, Wharton, Penn, uh, there's a lot there that, that connects for you. Um, I want to come back to, um, you know, kind of the seeds that you and your team planted when you were thinking about Red and Blue Ventures. Take us back to those early conversations. Was it this moment of, hey, how about this idea? 
I can't take credit for the original idea because the the predecessor to Red and Blue, which was MentorTech, was founded by uh, Michael Aronson and a, a former coworker of his uh, who he had worked with for, for a number of years at a startup. So uh, while Michael was teaching, he was also uh, starting and being on the senior management team of several software companies. But where where I came in was a little bit further into MentorTech's evolution, and then I was involved, obviously, with the with the switch over to Red and Blue. And the way venture capital funds are structured, it lends itself pretty well to these strategic shifts because every few years you have to raise a new fund in order to keep investing. And so effectively, you only get to invest each dollar that you raise once. So once you've put that money to work, it's time to go back to the market and raise a new fund. So each time you do that, you have to stop and think, well, first of all, we're doing something brand new. Do I want to commit to another 10-year partnership? And do I think that we have a story that both makes sense for us and also makes sense for our investors? Because ultimately, it's a sales process. We have to convince our investors to come with us through another 10-year fund, uh, both our existing investors and hopefully some new ones. And so it's good, it's good time for self-reflection. And so we look back at, at the strategy and we said, the IT opportunities that we're seeing are terrific. We'd had some big wins on the e-commerce side in particular. We're very fortunate to have invested in diapers.com, which was a, uh, which was a big hit, into uh, jet.com, which was also a, a really big hit. Uh, we're investors in Warby Parker, which is not an exit yet, but it's a terrific company. It's been an absolute rocket ship. And so we said that, that side is working pretty well, but the life sciences piece hasn't been working as well for us. And when you think about it objectively, was not as good of a fit for our skill set. And so where my influence came in was more narrowing the strategy. And you know, for all of the fancy business strategy stuff you might come up with, I think a pretty basic effective strategy is do more of what you're good at and less of what you're not. Are you wearing Warby Parkers right now? I am, yeah. I would say it's uh, pretty difficult to wear glasses and be invested in Warby Parker and not be wearing them. Although I happen to love the product anyway, and I'd, I'd like to think I'd be wearing them anyway. I was thinking the same thing, and I thought I have to ask because they're great glasses, and uh, I love the Warby Parker story. It's a it's a really compelling one, and I love the connection to Penn as well. Yeah, it's a terrific story, and one of the things that I love about it is that these are people who were not entrepreneurs before they got to Penn and decided to be when they got here and met their co-founders here. And I'm seeing that more and more on college campuses at Penn, but also at Drexel and at Temple, where people at school are finding their co-founders while they're at school. And many of them, particularly at the grad school level, are very intentional about it. And they're going back to school looking to start a company and looking to find people that they're going to work with. And they're looking at the, particularly with business school, the two years of business school as almost a testing ground for different ideas that they may come up with. I do love that. Uh, and I agree with you, but I also love the stories of where people just stumble into these things. It's an accidental creation of synergies that lead to something really great. Uh, and that's, it's really inspiring, especially to see young people um, coming together in that way. Um, coming back to Red and Blue Ventures, what do you want to tell a recent Penn grad and maybe someone who's not so recent, you know, someone who graduated last year and someone who graduated 31 years ago uh, about their idea and how they could potentially partner with and engage with Red and Blue? Well, in terms of how to engage with us, I would say the biggest thing is start engaging with us sooner rather than later. Um, there's a VC out on the West Coast named Mark Suster who, who writes a terrific blog called Both Sides of the Table. And he, he was a former entrepreneur and now he's a venture capitalist. And he wrote something that's one of my favorite pieces about how to interact with, with VCs. And it's called I Invest in Lines, Not Dots. And the whole concept is anytime I meet with someone, that's a data point about them, about their business. But 
it's very difficult to draw a conclusion about someone's trajectory from a data point. Ideally, you get to see multiple data points over a series of time, and that's how you figure out where things are going. And I think, at least for me, and different people feel differently about this, but at least for me, I strongly prefer to meet an entrepreneur as early as possible in the process, even when they're not raising money, and get a sense for who they are and what are they about and what are they trying to accomplish in the near term. And then as I subsequently meet them again and again over a period of time, first of all, I get to get a sense for their track record of accomplishment. And I think that's incredibly important. Can you build momentum behind your business? Can you do some of the things that you set out to do? But just as importantly, what did you set out to do that you decided not to do? One thing I've learned after almost 16 years in, in venture capital and in the startup world is that the business plan that you go to market with is pretty much always wrong. You're, you're making assumption layered on top of assumption layered on top of assumption. You can't possibly be right about all of those. And so the entrepreneurs who are the most successful are the ones who gather market feedback and figure out where they're wrong and adjust accordingly as quickly as possible. And one of the things I love to ask entrepreneurs when I meet them the second, third, fourth time is what were you planning on doing that you realized wasn't the right thing and what are you doing instead? And understanding the way people can gather and incorporate market feedback and change direction, to me, is one of the most important things out there. So um, engage early, engage often is, is something that, that I hear. And other people feel differently. I've heard people reference the silly old coffee commercial. Uh, you know, you never get a second chance to make a first impression. Um, I think it was coffee. Maybe it was shampoo. Who remembers? But, um, you know, I, I think the more I can get to know a person over a period of time, the more likely I am to invest and certainly the more likely I am to make a good decision about that investment. So that, that's certainly part of it. And, and hopefully it's a two-way conversation and hopefully I'm adding value to the entrepreneur along the way. Some of that could be sharing some strategic advice based on my experiences in the markets. Um, some of that may be sharing current market knowledge of what I'm seeing out there in terms of what types of companies are getting funded, who else might be working on similar problems, certainly not giving away anything confidential, but often saying, hey, have you looked at these two or three companies that, that are out there and, and public with what they're trying to do in your space? And then hopefully being able to make some strategic introductions as well. So, oh, you're, you're working on problem X. Have you ever met this person? This person is an expert in problem X. And it's one of the great things about being on a college campus is we're surrounded by world-leading experts in some of these things. And a lot of the professors, uh, particularly with student companies, but with alumni companies, a lot of the professors are very excited to get involved and at least meet with some of these entrepreneurs. How about a project that just didn't go the way you thought it was going to go? You, you, you invested in them and, and uh, it just, you know, uh, kind of petered out or, or didn't come to fruition. Uh, we could do a whole podcast on that pretty yeah. comfortably. Um, you know, in venture capital, you're going to be wrong in both directions. You're going to have false positives and false negatives. There's going to be the company that you invested in that didn't work out. And because we're investing at the earliest stages of a company's development, that is going to happen from time to time. And that's something that you have to accept as part of the business. But there's also the companies that we passed on that worked out really well. Um, to their everlasting credit, Bessemer Venture Partners on their website has their anti-portfolio, which is the companies they had the chance to invest in that they didn't invest in that ultimately turned out to be huge hits. So we, we, we see that going in, in, in both directions. And credit to them, of course, they've, they've had a terrific track record and they've been able to invest in enough that did work out that they can point to the, to the mistakes and go, okay, well, we missed that one. But for us, there have been, uh, there have been uh, some of each, of course. And in terms of companies that we invested in that didn't work out, I've seen a couple of different patterns. Um, and it doesn't have to be a company. It can be a project or a concept. 
I mean, the whole idea, of course, is that it's going to become a company. We're, we're generally speaking, purchasing equity. So there has to be a, a legal entity that we're, that we're buying a piece of. But off the top of my head, one that, that comes to mind was a company called First Flavor. Uh, what First Flavor was doing was, if you remember those Listerine breath strips, they had technology to, to make that type of a form factor taste like nearly anything. Mm-hmm. And it had a lot of different use cases, particularly around food and beverage sampling. And it was really innovative. It was a lower cost way of doing some of the sampling. It allowed things like sampling through the mail, which is often very difficult to do uh, with, with a liquid. It's difficult to ship a liquid. The post office doesn't really want you to do it. It can be messy. It can be certainly expensive. But those things weigh nothing. So you can, um, one of their first ad campaigns was as an insert in a magazine, which worked out really well. Um, the challenge that they ran into was effectively a market challenge. So they were really getting going late 2007 in, into 2008. And unfortunately, as we all remember, the market tanked pretty hard at that point, and the economy went into a, uh, I guess we're calling it the Great Recession now. Right. And unfortunately, when, when you hit these downtimes, one of the first things that gets cut in a company is the experimental budget. And they hadn't gotten established enough in the market yet that they were able to withstand the experimental budgets getting cut. They hadn't moved into people's regular mainstream budgets. So this was a company that had a fair amount of momentum, was getting national campaigns. Uh, Everything was looking pretty solid. And then the market effectively pulled the rug out from under them. So these sorts of things happen. And I'm not sure how much you can do to protect against macro risk like that. To the team's everlasting credit, they they kept at it for uh, for a long time and really tried to to make a go of it. But unfortunately, when uh, when people's spending gets cut, yeah. you know th- this can be a real challenge. The reality sets in. Yeah, let me ask one other quick question. And dealing with folks who have connections to Penn, faculty, staff, students, is there a um, a connection to having them establish operations somewhere in Greater Philadelphia, or do you not really have a preference? It's based on what their business model happens to be. We love when companies establish themselves in Philadelphia. Uh, as early stage investors, we feel like we can be most effective working with companies when we can spend a lot of time with them. Um, San Francisco is a terrific place, but I'm just not there often enough, and my network there isn't nearly as strong as it is here where I'm based. So I can probably be less helpful to a company in San Francisco than I can locally. Um, that having been said, it ultimately has to be the management team embracing where they want to be and making what they believe is the best decision for their business. So we're not going to tell someone don't move if they believe it's absolutely the right thing for them. And there are different cities that have different strengths in different sectors. So if you think that Philadelphia is the right place for you, we love when people do that. Um, you know, some VCs are have status on all the airlines. I've got status on Amtrak. I, I, I try to keep it. I, I try to keep it pretty local so I can spend a lot of time with these folks. But Ultimately, it has to be what's right for the company, and that's a combination of what larger companies that they're ultimately going to try to work with or sell to are nearby, what industries are strengths of a different area, and a lot of it is personal considerations. We see a lot of people moving because that's where their significant other wants to be. And sometimes that's Philly, and we certainly embrace that. And sometimes it's somewhere else. Um, We've certainly heard if you're going to be putting in the crazy hours that you're going to put in at a startup, we're going to be near my family because that's just the way we need to make this work. And, you know, you may be the only one in the family officially working on the startup, but make no mistake, your whole family is along for the ride. And I would suspect one of the cool things is that most of the folks you're interacting with, if not all of them, actually have some sort of connection to Philadelphia because they went to Penn or they went to Wharton or they have a relationship with somebody who went to Penn or Wharton. And absolutely, they've experienced the community. Absolutely. And I think 
people who have spent time in Philadelphia have a much more positive view of Philadelphia than people who haven't. Unfortunately, um, as great as Philly has become, I don't know that the word has gotten out to the degree that we would all like it to. And, you know, it's, it, you know, it makes me a little sad that I think some people's vision of Philly is still Rocky running through South Philly with trash cans on fire. Right. And you, you wouldn't recognize Philly. I, I got here in 99. The difference between Philly in 99 and Philly today is unbelievable. And downtown has, and you know, whether it's Center City or Old City or even some of the areas that maybe were a little bit more challenged in the past, but that have really, have really become vibrant areas like Northern Liberties or Fishtown or Graduate Hospital. Um, it's really been an incredible renaissance for Philadelphia. And I think a lot of people are missing out if they, if they don't know about that. But people who have a connection to the city and fond memories are often the first ones who are willing to make that jump. Absolutely. And, you know, we, we love the Rocky image and the Art Museum steps. But to your point, we're so much more than that. And, and the Philadelphia today and the greater Philadelphia community of today is so much more than that. And we're thrilled that the Red and Blue Ventures team is helping us tell that story because that's what we're all about at Growing Greater Philadelphia. And co-founder and managing director, Brett Topshi of Red and Blue Ventures, thanks for being with us. Thanks very much for having me. This was a lot of fun. This segment of Growing Greater Philadelphia is brought to us by the Commercial Banking Division of Citizens Bank. You know, the Citizens Bank team, they bring practical financial experience and deep industry expertise to each banking relationship. To learn how Citizens can help your company reach its full potential, visit citizensbank.com backslash commercial. And be sure to check out all of our podcasts at radio.com and tune in Friday mornings, 5 a.m. to Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Thanks so much for listening to Growing Greater Philadelphia. Philadelphia.